0: All right. Good morning. It's Sunday, August eleventh, two thousand thirteen, and this is Solder Smoke one five four. Solder Smoke one fifty four. Summertime. Yeah, sorry for the delay, guys. You know how it is. Vacation. Summertime activity. All that good stuff. It's been a while since the last podcast, but here we are. We were on the road. We were on a road trip, a long road trip, long for us, um, from uh, Northern Virginia down to. Orlando, Florida, where we were for, uh, for a couple of weeks in July. We took a, we, took it, um, we took the trip by uh, Charleston, South Carolina, stopped over there. Elisa really liked that place. I did too. Very nice city by the sea, right there in uh, the uh, harbor of Charleston. Water all around, beautiful old, old buildings, lots of southern charm, nice people. We had a real good time. Then from Charleston we went down to the Orlando area, lots to see down there had a good time. I guess the main theme for this vacation and something that we want to mention here because I think it'll be of interest to those who, who like the travelogue portion of uh, of the Sodder Smoke podcast. We haven't been doing too much of that since we returned from Italy, but uh, we'll throw in a little bit into this episode. Alligators. You know, I am really a northerner. Although I live in, in Virginia, which is part of the south, we're in the northern part of Virginia. We're in Nova where it is a very kind of culturally northern place you very rarely hear the southern accent around here and it it really is sort of like um yankee territory up here <laughs> uh, to put it bluntly it is and uh when we got down into dixie you know we'd always heard about how they have different Animal life down there. We'd always heard about the Florida gators and we knew that they were out there in the swamps, but we didn't really have a clear understanding of how close to nature you, you are when you're in a place, even like Orlando, uh, Florida. So we had heard about the alligators and uh, actually we went out and we took a ride in one of the, uh, the propeller, uh, boats, the, um, the airboats that go out that they use to go riding around in the swamps. A lot of fun, very interesting. Our first and most impressive exposure to alligators came right there at the Marriott Hotel that we were staying in. Elisa was out on the balcony. We were up on the second floor. Good thing. But she was out on the balcony uh, one morning having coffee. I was sitting in the air conditioning, you know, catching up on my email. And all of a sudden I hear very urgent tapping on the uh, balcony door. And she's calling me out to the balcony her eyes pretty wide and pointing down to the little golf course lake that they have there. One of these little kind of man-made lakes or ponds that uh, surround the hotel and are kind of features for the, uh, for the golf course. And sure enough just swimming along there on the surface looking sort of like images you see of the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> it's an alligator right there at the Marriott. Wow! Welcome to Florida. Things are different down there. <laughs> okay, so uh, my wife uh, called up the hotel and they said, oh, okay, we'll get the uh, the uh, the company that comes around and takes care of these kind of things to come by and capture the alligator, which they did. And I'm told that they took him to some other part of the county where they released him back into the wild. But uh, yeah, alligators come right up to the uh, hotels there in Orlando, Florida. Kind of disturbing for us Northerners, but things got even more disturbing on the trip back. We uh, we liked Charleston, South Carolina, so much that we decided to stop again on the way back up, and uh, Elisa wanted to see one of the um, the biggest estates that they have there, and um, it's very similar to the big English estates that have been turned into sort of uh, tourist destinations. Uh, we enjoyed those very much when we were in the UK, and this is a similar thing, but it in you know southern plantations, and so we went to this place outside Charleston called Middletown or, or Middleton Plantation. Really beautiful. Liked it a lot. Very very interesting. Elisa had studied it when she was um, studying um, landscape design, garden design in London, so it was very interesting for her to get actually to the site and take a look at the place that she'd studied, and at one point. Um, they had these two large kind of ornamental ponds there, and uh, Billy and Maria were getting a little bit tired of the uh, the tourism. So we told them, "Hey, look, you guys just sit here for a minute. It's a nice bench here by the by the pond in the shade. We're going to take a walk around. We'll come back and get you in a in a few minutes." So we were just heading off on our uh, our tour when all of a sudden we hear the kids yelling and screaming, and I think, "Wow, you know, <laughs> you can't." They can't keep them themselves entertained for five minutes and I look back and Billy is pointing at the water and they're pointing at yet another alligator. This one in Charleston, South Carolina in this little pond there at the plantation. Fairly large alligator was uh, was looking out of the water looking at them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, um, we talked to the people at the at the plantation. they say this is quite common and doesn't cause any any trouble, but uh, there you go. alligator alligator vacation. Uh, I thought that would be kind of interesting to the solder smoke listeners. Um, I'm sure the Southerners will find this routine. The northerners and probably the Europeans will find this as, as disturbing as we did. <laughs> anyway, a lot of fun, very interesting. had a great trip. Good to be back in the shack, and I immediately, you know, kind of tried to catch up on projects that were kind of pending here, you know. And I'm sure you, you guys, have the same situation. There's no real schedule to what you work on in the shack. You're kind of driven by, by whims, by spur of the moment motivations, by the last article that you read in in those old QST magazines that you have piled up in the corner. And the same thing happened with me. I, I've I've been in kind of a beacon mood lately. I kind of like uh you know I like beacons of of various kinds and I've played around with 10 meter beacons lately with the whisper system when I was uh, overseas we played a lot with the um, with beacons that are basically aimed up at uh, orbiting satellites and using the automatic position reporting system the APRS system uh you know I got back and I had been playing around with Arduino and my idea was when I came back was that I wanted to take this beacon rig that I had built up. It was one little chassis with um, basically two beacons in there, one for for 30 meters and a separate transmitter called a little slugger or a little slugger by Doug Demore for for 10 meters. I'd built this little slugger, I think, way back when we were in Northern Virginia before we went out last time, which puts it in the 12 to 13 year old category, but um, I dug it up and, and the thing is I had in there a very nice little keyer from K1EL, a K1EL keyer. I really like the K1EL keyer. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. The problem here is at the operator end. Um, the, the K1L keyer is designed to be programmed and, and used really with kind of a side swiper. I called it an iambic keyer. But it's really just a cootie keyer. The idea is that you have one contact for dots and the other one for dashes. And I, when I first used the K1L keyer, I, I rigged up using a um, a kind of a hacksaw blade, a little sideswiper keyer. But I quickly discovered that if you'd spent your whole amateur career using a straight key, you know, up and down, it it takes some getting used to to use this kind of side swiper keyer. A lot of getting used to as a matter of fact and it's especially it was especially difficult for me because when you're programming the K1EL keyer when you're trying to input the, uh, the message that you would like to be transmitted you have to get it exactly right and you have to put some kind of formatting information in the beginning, some formatting information at the end, you have to do it at pretty constant speeds pretty I think pretty close to about 15 words a minute it's it's harder than you'd think (laughs) and I had a lot of trouble with it so when I was getting back into the beacon business I decided well I will just use my newfound Arduino skills and I'll take um, this wonderful CW program that uh, Mark K6HX has worked up for the Arduino and I'll work out, I'll I'll play with the code a little bit, and I'll come up with a system so that every time there's a dot, it closes one little relay, and every time there's a dash, it closes another little relay. And then I'll hook that up to the K1EL keyer, and any time I want to change the code, I'll just have, I'll change the code in, in Mark's program, I'll write up whatever I want to have transmitted, and then I'll use that, to program the, uh, the K1EL keyer. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it was actually a fun little project and I got it done. I was quite proud of myself. I'm, I'm sure those of you who have been hoping that I'll move into the, uh, into the modern world of microcontrollers will be almost equally pleased. <laughs> but I did it and I built up the little relays and two little relay driver trans, uh, transistors and, um, I uh changed the code around so there were two outputs, one output from I think pin 12, the other output from pin 13, one's for dots, one for dashes, and I had the whole thing up and I got it running and there it was clicking away. Oh man, it was nice. I even had little uh, red LED lights so you could see which of the relays was being turned on at any given moment, and it was doing exactly what I wanted it to do. And then I hooked it up and I started running it and I don't know anytime you got a lot of relays clicking. I put diodes across the relays um, uh, coils because you know you get really high transient voltages there and I don't know what I did but somewhere in the process of doing this I uh, I messed up and I think I blew up the chip on the K1EL keyer. Now these guys at K1EL have been very nice to me in the past and I I did this before and they sent me a replacement chip but I didn't want to I didn't want to uh, kind of impose on them again so I just said okay now we're gonna just change the way I key this thing and I'm just gonna key it key the transmitter directly from the Arduino so back to the uh, the Arduino back to the K6 AHX um, Morse code program and I just uh, worked up a little kinda of relay in there at first I, I had a I had the the little slugger just being driven by the Arduino um and just using a keying transistor there to to drive the transmitter but i found that i could get it to work better if i had a little relay driver and a relay with the relay actually opening and closing to to key the the transmitter i found that the keying was um was more complete and just i had that complete on off uh um a keying there going into the to the little slugger transmitter so Actually, I like it too because you, uh, when, the, when this thing is operating, you hear those relays clicking and it sounds, it sounds like those old, you know, when you heard Morse code on the, over the radio telegraph lines in the, the, in the keying office, that click, 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 click sound there going. It was a lot of fun. I got it going and I was very happy with it. And I fired it up. I have a little one watt, well, the, the, the little slugger putting out about one watt, but far from optimum antenna. And I fired it up on uh, on 10 meters. Some interesting results. First, not a lot of results, you know. And I realized that um, I had gotten from Whisper and from the reverse beacon network on 20 meters. I had become accustomed to kind of instant gratification in this area, you know. Um, with Whisper, and you just throw a little piece of wire out the window, you fire up Whisper, and if you've got the timing on your computer set up properly and you're on the right frequency you're almost guaranteed to get reports back very quickly Uh, more on that in a minute you know with the reverse beacon network on on 20 meters if you call CQ and uh, and then check reverse beacon network you're gonna see all kinds of stations all around the world world hearing you and reporting it automatically to the uh, to the website, so it's very kind of quickly gratifying and not so much on ten meters I'm finding it's really it's kind of interesting. Um, my message on ten meters says that um, uh, it, it just gives my call sign and then asks the the, the receiving station to send me a report on uh, via the internet and it gives my uh, internet and my email address. I've done this before and I did receive a number of reports this way but this time for some reason I was running it for a fairly long period of time and I wasn't getting very many uh or any kind of email reports on stations receiving me so I think a couple of things might be at play you know maybe because of these automatic systems people are sending out less reports maybe there are a few fewer people listening or for 10 meter beacons maybe a smaller percentage of the people who are listening can handle Morse code these days Uh, and people may be with knowing that there's all these automatic systems out there they may be less inclined to take the trouble to send you um, an email report so the bottom line is that uh, although I was very pleased pleased with my uh, clicking relays and success in getting the Arduino driven little slugger on the air not a lot of reports came in, and the one report—well, one of the two reports that came in that I saw—actually came from a, a fellow who does the frequency coordination for the beacons on 10 meters, and he very kindly told me that I was interfering with a, a Canadian beacon that was already on my crystal's frequency. So I, you know, I thanked him for the for the report and told him that I would uh, QSY when I got back and. We worked it out, and I put a little capacitor in the uh, in in the circuit. Was able to change the uh, frequency of my output, and so I was back on the air. There was one other station that reported um, via one of these websites where people can file reports on beacons heard, but those were the only two reports I got on the on the uh, on the uh, little little slugger. But um, and then I thought, well, okay, maybe the reverse beacon network that performed. So superbly on twenty meters and other bands, surely um, this thing must be picking up uh, signals, and I'll be seeing lots of reports on the reverse beacon network. And I went there and uh, no, it's the reverse beacon network on ten meters does not uh, pick up my uh, my signal. I'm getting no reports from the reverse beacon network, and it's kind of surprising. and I even played around with what I was sending in the uh, in the message. Sending things that the reverse beacon network would be looking for, including, you know, slash beacon or, or beacon or BCN. Um, even put a CQ in there because I know some of these stations are, are set up to look for stations calling CQ. But no, I know, no real joy with the reverse beacon network on 10 meters. And when I, when I probed around and looked around a little bit, I discovered that one of the reasons for this may be that if you look at the number of, of reverse beacon network skimmers, these receiving stations that are active, relatively few of them are on 10 meters. There's far more skimmers on 20 meters and other bands, and there just aren't that many stations skimming up on 10 meters. Also, maybe propagation, of course. I mean, it, it may be that I'm, I'm out there when the maximum usable frequency is far below 28 megahertz, but, um, Anyway, uh, kind of interesting. RBN, Reverse Beacon Network, not so not so useful on 10 meters I'm finding. Let me know if you guys have a different experience or if I'm, I'm missing something. Um, be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. I'm going to talk about Whisper in a few minutes, but first, a couple other things that popped up recently. While we were gone, I started getting emails from guys who saw a review of Solder Smoke, the book, in the August issue of QST. Very pleased about that. And uh, very very happy that uh, that QST uh, gave uh, a review uh, of the book, and it was a very nice review. If you guys haven't taken a look, take a look at the August uh, QST—a very a very kind and nicely written review of Solder Smoke, the book. And uh, it's caused uh, a lot of people to go out and and pick up a copy of the book, either in electronic form or in print. And I'm getting a lot of feedback. A lot of people are enjoying the book, and that's always the biggest uh, payback so uh, thanks to qST for running a review of the book um, I have a telescope repair story for you guys you know Zen and the uh, and the art of telescope maintenance I uh, you'll get a kick out of this uh, you know when you get to a certain age a friend of mine his his wife told him that uh, she didn't want to hear any more um, organ recitals and he said, well, what do you mean she said, oh you and your friends get around and you talk about all your different organs and what's wrong with them. <laughs> okay. So we're going to stay away from the organ recitals, but I got a story for you that I think you might find interesting because it has to do with troubleshooting. Um, you know, um, I might have mentioned this earlier, but I have this, um, I have this little telescope. It's a six inch Dobsonian, Newtonian. Elisa got it for me for Christmas a while back. And I occasionally pull it out to take a look at, uh, the planets that are, uh, visible through the trees here in northern Virginia. And I did this, uh, I guess, about six or eight months ago, and I noticed that uh, the, the image that I was getting of Jupiter was really messed up. It looked bad. It, looked, it just didn't look... It wasn't the nice, smooth, round disk with the beautiful stripes across it. The Galilean moons didn't look as clear and crisp as they did before. I turned the telescope to the moon. It looked all messed up, and I figured, gosh, my optics must be misaligned or... Or maybe I've gotten some, some gunk on the mirror. So I took the thing, stripped it down, cleaned all the optics, realigned the thing, the whole nine yards. It's quite involved. Took it out again. Same thing. No improvement. No joy. Anyway, I, uh, I just happened, I usually, usually look through the eyepiece with my left eye. And, uh, just by chance, I, for some reason look through it with the right eye and guess what the image was perfect uh-oh there's a there, there's an organ problem here and uh well i you know i didn't think much of it i probably should have got it checked checked out right away but well i didn't and um but eventually i started thinking you know i should probably get that checked out because you don't have to be a genius troubleshooter to realize where the problem might be in this situation so I went in and first I started out with the ophthalmologist and he said oh no then you gotta go talk to the retina guy so finally I went to see the retina guy and he had this really cool new um, retina image machine where they could make this very easily make a, a 3d image of your retina and um, anyway uh, he looked at it and showed me the image, and he said that I have this thing called macular pucker. <laughs> it's basically, for some reason, the the macula portion of my retina has puckered up a bit, so it's kind of uneven. It's uh, it's not a real problem. It's not like uh, macular degeneration degen- or retina separation or anything like that. So it's 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 basically it 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 basically causes a notable problem if I try to look at Jupiter with my left eye instead of my right eye. And I told the doctor, I said, well, I could probably, I could probably live with that if it's okay with you, doc. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's probably all right. But um, I just thought it was kind of a funny kind of troubleshooting story because there I was stripping down the telescope, cleaning lenses, working on the alignment and everything else where the problem was uh, actually kind of much closer at hand. So we got that straightened away and squared away, and uh, enough of the the organ recital. But uh, I'll be using my li- my right eye from now on when I look at uh, Jupiter. It's actually not that bad with the left eye either. So uh, anyway, but for, uh, we <laughs> we got that all squared away. All right, another project. Another project came up, and this is after we came back from uh, from Florida. Um, while I was away, I started thinking about amplifiers. I know, I know this, there's a lot of real diehard QRP fans in our audience, and I don't mean to offend anybody or, uh, you know, make this difficult to listen to, but I was thinking about amplifiers. I admit it. Yeah, there it is. I'll just come right out and say it. Yep, I was thinking about amplifiers, not in the kilowatt range, but in the 100 watt range. And I know that for the QRPers out there it's that's almost equally offensive it's almost it, it's just beyond the 5 watt CW 10 watt phone pale and uh I was I was kind of transgressing in that area at least in my mind you know and what I was thinking about doing was to build up an amplifier i I always thought that i really have sitting here in the shack a very nice um 100 watt 150 watt amplifier in the uh the Heathkit HW101 that has been sitting on my shelf now for for a number of years i bought this thing probably um well 20 22 years ago when i was in the Dominican Republic yeah something like that i went to, it was in the Dominican Republic from 92 to 96 and somewhere during that period, I went out on eBay, which was kind of new at the time, and bought a, a used Heathkit HW-101. I bought it because this was one of the rigs that I had kind of lusted for in my uh, teenage amateur radio youth. Um, we had one at the Crystal Radio Club on field day it was the novice rig and i really liked this thing it was so cool it's such it's such a beautiful looking transceiver i wanted one i couldn't afford it but well i got older i still wanted it and now i could afford it so i bought it on ebay and i had a lot of fun with this rig i had it i used it when i was in the dominican republic it was one of the first rigs that um the um that I actually used the internet to get advice on how to fix it. One time, the when I first started using it, the uh, tuning was really squirrely and would jump around a little bit. It wasn't at all smooth. And I was really pulling my hair out trying to figure out what to do with it. And then I went out onto the, I think it was the Boat Anchors mailing list and asked about this. And some guy in Arizona who was well familiar with this rig said, Bill, just take some oil. Take some WD-40 and put a couple drops on the uh the main on the kind of the uh the ball bearings and the main tuning capacitor or maybe the reduction drive and your problems will disappear. And just this just it's I did it and the problems disappeared and it was just so cool to reach out via the the internet, which was at that time pretty new, and tap into the expertise of a of a far more experienced ham out there in Arizona and then fix this uh, this wonderful transceiver that I had seated on, seated on my uh, workbench, it was just great. Um, but and I used the HW 101 for for a number of years. But then I came to the conclusion that it just didn't age well. You know, this is this was an economy rig. And the Heath engineers had started out basically with a, an SB 101, and then they decided well, let's make a cheaper version. So that was the HW101. And you could see where they cut corners a lot of, in a lot of different places. And I started having a lot of trouble with the HW101. Different circuits would start going bad. I actually had physical trouble with it. In addition to that little oil change operation that I just described, there's there's a clutch in the HW101. It's a the dial clutch mechanism. There's a little button on the front that says zero set. And you hold it in And this allows you to line up the uh, the dial with the uh, the tone from the crystal calibrator that's in there. That's how you you line up the uh, the the frequency calibration on the main tuning dial. The clutch just popped one time when I put it because the plastic had grown so brittle. So there I was in the Dominican Republic with a popped clutch, a broken clutch on a Heathkit HW101. I I figured out how to get a piece of kind of similar plastic. And I cut out a replacement part, so I've got my own homemade clutch in there. Anyway, I came to the conclusion. The you know, the other thing was that this is really a hybrid rig, kind of, I don't know, with a kind of kind of uncomfortable hybrid nature. For example, they have um, it's a tube rig essentially, although there is there are semiconductors in it. The, uh, the VFO is run with a little um, uh, join, uh, junction FET. Which is the heart of the rig, really. And then, but the, the junction FET feeds a tube type amplifier, which is kind of unusual, kind of weird. The other weird thing is that it's all mostly tubes, but the tubes are mounted on, um, on PC boards inside the, uh, the HW101. Tubes on PC boards, tubes next to junction FETs. Uh, the power supply has got all, um, uh, solid state diodes in there it's a bit unusual it's got like one foot in the tube era one foot in the solid-state era and I came to the conclusion that it was starting to age poorly and I just in my mind said as you'd say in Italian "Basta! enough enough oil changes enough clutch repair enough troubleshooting in there also around this time when, when we um came back from the Dominican Republic. Um, my kids were, were born during that period and I made the decision kind of to move away from high voltage and tube type gear and concentrate on solid state stuff, which was another reason why the HW 101 went into storage, went into mothballs, as they said, as they say. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, so while I was in Florida, I started thinking about amplifiers, and I said, you know, I'm going to do something with this rig. And then, shortly after I came to work, I was came back after I came home. I was walking to work through um, the Foggy Bottom section of Washington D.C., and I I found myself thinking about bidex transceivers. This is another ambition of mine. I've been wanting to build a bidex rig, and then sort of these thoughts kind of mix together in your head you guys know what i'm talking about i started thinking about bidx transceiver that i wanted to build i started thinking about what kind of box i would put it in then i started thinking about amplifiers what i'm going to do about the amplifier project then i started thinking well maybe i'll build the X and set it up so that i can run it with the amplifier the hw101 amplifier and then bang an idea it popped into my head here's the idea pretty much gut the HW101 take out all those silly you know tubes on PC board circuit boards take them all out take almost everything out but leave in there some of the essential elements of a 150 watt SSB transceiver leave in there The power amplifiers, the two 6146s, and all the associated tuned circuits, the output network, the input network, all that great kind of Heathkit mechanical engineering, all those variable capacitors that are moved around with these big long metal rods that come in from the front panel and are connected by pulleys and all kinds of... Rupe, Goldberg kind of mechanical engineering stuff in there. Leave all that in there. Yes, we'll leave that in there. That's good stuff. And I'd hate to have to build that myself. <laughs> and the other thing that I was thinking about leaving in there, leave in there the the variable frequency oscillator that is in many ways the heart of the Heathkit HW101. Also, leave in there the crystal filters. There's, there are two crystal filters in there one for CW one for SSB switchable from the front panel this was one of the changes from the Heath HW100 to the Heath HW101 101. the 101 model lets you switch from front from the switch the two different kinds of filters from the front panel and then i thought i'll just build around these components a bit x rig you know it would be great And I I would call this the HB-101, the Homebrew 101. Get it? Or maybe I'd call it a BidX 101. This was my fantasy. I was really seized with this while walking to work as I went through Foggy Bottom. And I I came back from work that evening and I went to the blog. And I wrote up this, what I thought to be a brilliant idea. And I put it out there to the readers of the blog and said, what do you guys think of this? And i got to tell you, I did not get an overwhelmingly positive response. Almost everybody that wrote back hated the idea. Some of the BitX builders just said, enough, just build the BitX, and then if you want more power, build a little solid-state amplifier, and, and that'll be it. Then there were, of course, a lot of guys who wrote back and said, Don't butcher that Heathkit HW-101. That's a nice rig. Leave it alone. Fix it. Make it work. Sell it to somebody who will like it. All that kind of stuff. So I I, I still wanted to do this because it sounded to me like a cool project. So like uh, last weekend, I I go up to my storage shelf and I pull out the HW-101. I seat it up on the workbench and I look at it and I say, gosh, that's a beautiful rig. It really is. Let me take a look inside. Now, I opened it up with the idea that I would see how much room I had, where I could put the BitX20 boards. I'd printed out the BitX20 uh, schematic. I was thinking about whether I'd build it a BitX20 or a BitX17, all that kind of stuff. And I opened up that heat kit. And I said, wow, that's, it looks even better inside. It looks really nice. I have pictures of it up on the blog. If you scroll through the blog, you'll see the the front look the front end of it and the back and the inside look. It looks beautiful inside. It really does. I mean I even with the kind of goofy tubes on PC boards, it's still a wonderful thing to look at. And there's all kinds of like I said, all kinds of great mechanical engineering and pulleys. You know, the the original um the um little uh pulleys there that uh Heathkit had, these little kind of rubber bands that you use to um uh, to turn the, the, the tuning capacitors for the, for, the, for the power output stage, the power amplifier, they, they usually deteriorated over time and you had to replace them. And there were certain kinds of O-rings that you could get that were the right size, so I replaced them. Everywhere I looked in this, this rig, I saw evidence of, of repairs that I had made, of things that I had done, of battles that I had fought, of troubleshooting campaigns that had eventually Yielded success. Some circuits that I had never been able to work right, that I that I ended up just leaving, disabled. For example, there's a, a kind of a, a kind of a QSK Vox operated keying arrangement in there. Somehow I could never get that thing to work right. Also, the um, automatic level control that Heath had in there kind of ended up going bad on mine, and I just have that disconnected, so I have no real Automatic level control or automatic uh, or AVC on the receiver—it uh, doesn't really bother me. But anyway, the thing is, when I looked into this rig, I realized that there's a lot of soul in that rig. First of all, there's, there's all these fond teenage memories. There's just a, a wonderful and an extremely popular and important HF transceiver—a rig that I worked on a lot, that I've had with me in in many different locations, and I knew. Well, I didn't know quite yet, but then I said, I knew that I wasn't going to do this, but I I still thought I might. But then I said, okay, let's see, let me just see how it's working. So I pulled out the power supply. Now, Even the power supply, the power supply I rebuilt because the capacitors were bad. So I looked into that power supply and I could see the, the new capacitors that I had put in there. So even the even the capacitor, even the even the, 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 the capacitors in the power supply, the power supply had some additional soul put in there by by yours truly. Anyway, I hooked up the power supply. You know, it's funny. You got to be careful when you make that transition from working on transistor rigs with 12 volts to uh, you know a solid state rig with 800 volts. You got to be really careful. My instincts, my old instincts, kicked in. And even though I didn't have it fired up, I found myself with my left hand reaching around my back to grab that, uh, that back rung on my uh, on my blue jeans. Because, you know, when you're working on the high voltage stuff in any way, shape, or form, it's best to, to work on it with one hand. You know, I learned that a long time ago. So I, that old safety precaution kicked in. Even that made me think that I shouldn't get rid of this rig or I shouldn't gut it. I uh, Fired up the power supply. I brought it up on the variac a little bit just to prevent everything from going anything from going pop. But nothing blew up. It fired up, and man, that receiver—it sounds great. It really does. It sounds terrific. I I don't know. There's something about it. It really sounds nice, both on CW and sideband. Um, And I so I I listened around for a while, and then I said, okay, let me see if I can get the uh, the transmitter going. And uh, I went in there and. I had, to, had to mess around with it a little bit forget what it was that was wrong something wasn't quite right I think I had the bias adjusted wrong but I went in there and man I got it going I had it on the bench I didn't even have it fully in the case I had the power supply and the rig kind of exposed there on the on the workbench and I started hearing stations calling CQ I had a little 20 meter dipole outside I hooked it up and I, I'm, I'm working DX with this thing on the workbench and it brought back all kinds of fond memories and i knew at that point as soon as i started working stations with this thing the uh, the whole you know hb1 hb101 X 101 project poof it's gone i'm not going to do it i'm not going to chop this thing up i'm not going to cannibalize the hw101 no way uh uh-uh. uh i hope to build you know a X rig in the future but it's not going to be in this box. This heat each, this each kit is going to stay the way it is. The icing on the cake guys of what really made me convinced that I had made the right decision. I, I put it back in its case and I put it kind of on the operating table. And you know, one of the things you got to do with this, with these rigs is you've got to kind of get the, get the heat out. There's a lot of heat in there. And so I put a little muffin fan up on top of the, top of the HW 101. And so anytime I turned it on, I got that muffin fan running. And when I, I turned it on, I let it warm up. I got the muffin fan run, running and I went out of the shack for a while. I came back. Guys, that shack was filled with that aroma, that aroma of Heath kit, that aroma of dust and rosin on tubes, on thermotrons, as, uh, as Grayson would say. And it was it was just such a a nice familiar you know old smell smell from my ham radio youth. <laughs> I knew that I wasn't gonna gonna gut that thing. I may gut other rigs. There's other rigs around that I got my eye on for this kind of amplifier project. That DX60 over there looks like it would be a nice amplifier. It looks like an amplifier. It looks more like an amplifier than a transmitter. You see where I'm going? But not the Heathkit HW101. It's gonna stay where it is, and this will probably keep me in QRP mode for a little while longer. I, um, after I made this decision, I, uh, just, and this, this shows that the radio gods are with me on this. I, I've been in the habit lately, since I've been getting back into tubes, since Grayson sent me, uh, uh, his, his book, on uh, on thermatrons called Hollow State designed, available from Lulu.com. Get it? It's really good. I think Grayson has put me into this kind of thermatron mindset. So now when I go off to work, I reach down and I grab a couple copies of Electric Radio magazine. I love Electric Radio magazine. Wonderful, wonderful document. Wonderful publication. And I have with me um in my hand right now, the April 1996 edition. I was still in the Dominican Republic. Sure enough, it's addressed to W.R. Mara, APOAA 34041. That's the U.S. Embassy in Santo Domingo. But I took this with me to work, and I opened it up, and just by chance, it has an article in there called The HW-101, The World's Most Popular Rig by WA7ZZE. and you know uh, Chuck Pence is one of the uh, is the real authority on on Heathcets, and he wrote this really great article uh, about the HW101, its evolution, the design specs, its connections to the SB101. But let me read you the last paragraph of this article, and he says I, it seemed like it feels like he was writing to me here. I have a feeling that I may be preaching to the choir here in electric radio. But anyone with a desire to experiment with vintage ham radio could hardly do better than to pick up a Heathkit HW-101 built with intuition, imagination, and risk. The stuff of legends. There you go. Thank you, Chuck Penson. Thank you to the radio gods who guided me through this project. Thanks to all of the Solder Smoke blog readers who prevented me from committing a radio atrocity. Um, that HW-101, it's on the air. I'm working DX with it. I'm having a great time with it. It's, it's wonderful. Anyway, that's, thanks guys. And that's the, the HW-101 story so far. The saga continues. I may try getting that, um, that automatic level control circuit going. I think I'm going to give up on the QSK thing. I'll just put a little TR switch in there. Work it that way. Anyway, a lot of fun with that. Okay, now, whisper. I said I would talk a little bit about whisper. I know some of you guys really like this, some of you guys really hate it. So I won't drone on at length here. Maybe I will, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I built this whisper rig, and it's it's gone through many different um uh, evolutions. It's was inspired by uh, W3PM. He wrote a an article a while back on home brewing equipment for um use with the WHISPER system. This is Joe Taylor's Weak, weak, weak Signal Propagation Reporting System, WHISPER. What a snappy acronym. Um, and and it's, it's a really ingenious system. I've talked about it here before, but let me talk about this rig that I built. First, the rig. It's called my last Roman rig. I've got all kinds of pictures of it up on the blog. It's, it's evolved. It is now a 30 meter double sideband transmitter with a direct conversion receiver. One stage in common and that is a um, a variable crystal oscillator operating at um, 10.1387 megahertz. Um, This rig, it's got a lot of soul in it too. I built this, it was the last rig I built in Rome. Um, The receiver is now, I'd say, inspired mostly by Doug DeMauw. The front end is a 40673 mixer. And from that 40673 mixer, which was a a very popular circuit of Doug DeMauw, it goes to an audio amplifier designed by Roger Hayward, Wes Hayward's son. Um, And Roger used this um audio amplifier circuit in his ugly weekender. He did an article in for QST called a receiver for the ugly weekender. I really liked Roger's audio amplifier circuit um for many reasons. One being that it's not the uh standard LM three eighty six mystery chip. Discrete components. Understandable circuitry. Nice output. Anyway, there it was. So there's the receiver. The uh the oscillator stage, the common stage is designed by our friend uh George Dobbs G3RJV of GQRP and Sprat fame and legend, uh, wonderful to have in the rig. A, a bit of circuitry designed by by George, and there it is at the heart of the rig. The transmitter has gone through a lot of evolution. It's got a bit of Doug DeMaw in there too, because it has his standard two diode trifilar toroid balanced modulator. And, um, the, um, the balance modulator is driven directly by a, uh, the audio coming out of the computer. More about that in a minute. But from the balance modulator, we have, uh, a bit of, of new circuitry, basically, a, a 30 meter version of the RF chain that Peter Parker down there in Australia uses in his now famous, um, Beach 40. A double sideband transceiver. Now, Peter Parker has been doing great stuff. bk 3 ye Check out his website. Amazing, amazing stuff. And I've been looking at Peter's rig. And when I wanted to put a new RF amplifier into this rig, I chose the, the RF chain that Peter has in his. Very simple. Puts out a nice one watt. Really, really nice. Very simple. Anyway, lots of uh, input from friends here. Lots of kind of soul in this machine. I'm going to pause now because I hear the family returning from the shopping mall. Stand by. Okay, I'm back. A little bit of time has passed. About 18 hours. <laughs> you guys know how it is. One thing leads to another. Busy days here in the summertime. Alright, we we're talking about Whisper. Yeah, I am, you know, I, I really like this, uh, this technology. I've described the rig. The one last thing I, I wanted to tell you about was I... You need a little. You need somehow to some way to turn to, to go from transmit to receive on Whisper, and uh, there's a number of different ways to do it. But keeping with the uh, kind of the simplicity ethos of this rig, I decided to go with just a, kind of a Vox arrangement. So I put on the uh, on the line that carries the um, the audio output from the computer. Uh, into the kind of the mic in jack on the double side bend DC transceiver. I just built up a little, um, vox circuit with a relay. So as soon as this thing detects audio coming in, it shifts the whole rig from transmit to receive and a little relay clicks over. Now the result is I have, um, the box with the, with the, with the rig sitting right underneath the Asus EPC. I'll try to put a picture up on the blog, and I have, of course, I have it running the uh, the whispers pro- the whisper program, and it's it's really pretty neat. It, it sits there. I've got it hooked up to a 30 meter dipole, and this little collection of of technology, computer, and and radio technology, does an amazing series of things all, all by itself. It's all very automatic. It just sits there. On receive, it's scooping up all these little weak signals coming in, using uh, DSP and very narrowband uh, software-defined radio filters to uh, decode them, and then it it automatically sends these reports reports on what it's received to to the website where they're displayed for all the world to see on on the maps. And all kinds of custom built maps that you can build up depending on who you, whose signal you want to see. You can even display what other stations are receiving, what reports they're sending in. And then I have it set right now for, um, about a 30, 30% uh, transmit rate. That means the hour is broken up into two minute blocks. So for, um, if set it, set it, uh, 30%. That means about ten times an hour, my uh, my rig goes over to transmit, and uh, during those ten, you know, two minute periods, it it transmits my little whisper message to the world. Uh, I'm thinking I could back off on that a bit, and go down to uh, to ten percent, just to to be on. I just there the relay just clicked over. You might have heard it. Um. Anyway, um, great uh, great fun and. uh just there. It Also, on the display, it, it displays uh, on the computer screen the stations that I've received. And I can actually see sort of a, a version of a waterfall display showing what, what 30 meters looks like. So, lots of um, really cool and amazing technology in the, uh, in the Whisper system. And, again, I think it's my recent kind of uh, fooling around with good old-fashioned CW uh, beacons on 10 meters it's it's really made me appreciate the uh the advantages afforded by uh by the whisper system uh, that Joe Taylor has uh, created for us you you really do get that that uh, instant feedback instant gratification that uh <laughs> you don't get the old fashioned way so uh, so three cheers for whisper hey i, I was looking here at the um List of things that I wanted to tell you about, and I forgot to mention something uh, in terms of um, telescope repair and telescope maintenance. A while back, I I mentioned that I uh, was kind of in need of a suitable um, lubricant for the telescope. To um, you know, it's it's a Dobsonian telescope, so the whole thing just sort of floats on kind of a version of a lazy Susan for spinning it around, and then there's kind of a um, kind of a turret kind of a kind of a vertical turret arrangement uh, for for moving it up and down and mine had grown kind of sticky and there were all kinds of suggestions on what to use turtle wax was one of the uh, solutions offered and i found that turtle wax <clears throat> didn't work at all but i read somewhere on the internet that uh, that a good lubricant there is chapstick you know this little thing that you little like lipstick kind of thing you put on your lips to prevent your lips from getting dried out and split in the winter time. And uh, well, my, my daughter has lots of uh, cherry chapstick laying around, so I uh, got some, and it, it really works great. It's the, it's the best lubricant that I've used with the Dubsonian Telescope. And you know, I've used some different, different kinds of things there. I remember when we were out in, uh, in Ponticelli, um, in, uh, in Sabina, at one point, I, I needed something and I used olive oil. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to report that chapstick is uh, is the way to go. So we can add this to the uh, to the arsenal of kind of uh, home remedies for um, for technological purposes. I mean, who can forget when when Mike and I uh, discovered that you could we didn't discover but we 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 read somewhere that you could use um, desitin, which is kind of a, a kind of a, a baby ointment that they use for diaper rash. You could use that for um, for heat sink compound, and, uh, and it had the the advantage of filling the shack as the transistors heated up, uh, filling the shack with a really kind of sweet kind of nursery aroma. <laughs> I guess it's good. It kind of it reminds you that you have kids as you're becoming obsessed with <laughs> the radio that day. Anyway. Yeah, okay, chapstick. There was something else that we were using along those lines. Something, oh, well, you know, lots of lots of stuff uh, purloined from the kitchen and used in ham radio over the years. Uh, let's see, what I'm looking at my list here. Well, I think that means, ladies and gentlemen, that it's time for
1: solder smoke mailbag. Ooh, that's awesome
0: yeah solder smoke mailbag here we are. mail always slows down a little bit in August. People are off doing other things. I understand. Got a nice message though from um from Wayne k four w k he's um was listening to solder smoke one five two heard me mention the the reverse beacon network. There seems to be a beacon thing in the air this summer um he did a little experiment. He sent, uh, he called CQ for a while with his Yesu 817 and he went back to the reverse beacon network and uh, took note of the signal reports indicating the uh, the decibel figure. I guess it's the signal to noise ratio at the uh, receive station. A few minutes later he did the same thing with a Kenwood TS 9590 at 100 watts and then printed out the same results. Um, he said that 11 stations spotted me in both situations so he averaged the signal reports and compared them to the theoretical difference between 5 watts and 100 watts. Kind of interesting. Of course it should be 13 dB. He said at 5 watts my consolidated signal reports report was 11 dB and at 100 watts it was 18.5 dB. Um, For the same 11 stations yielding a difference of 7.5 7.5 dB, not 13. So, um Wayne's kind of curious about that. I am too. It's kind of interesting. I, I suggested that he might try it with a larger sample. We'll try to figure out why you got the difference between theoretical and observed there. Hmm. Let's see. Got a nice email the other day from Tom W8TK. He said, Bill, I'm reading and enjoying solder smoke. I can fill you in on the origin of the term Elmer. The term was, co- was coined by Rod Newkirk, W9BRD, who wrote How's DX and QST for a couple of decades. Rod became a, a silent key just a few months ago. Wow, I was a big fan of Rod. What a wonderful column that was. I think that's one of the things that pulled me into, uh, into Ham Radio even deeper. <laughs> he had this great writing style. He, he really captured the mystery of of DX I love that uh, the masthead that he had on the column it showed uh, uh, a little tropical island with a little kind of thatched shack with a dipole and open wire feeder. Yeah. Alright, back to back to the email. The original Elmer was W nine DY Elmer Frohart, known to his friends as Bud. Bud and Rod both worked at the same post of Illinois State Police as radio technicians. They both started there right after World War II when statewide police communications was conducted on HF radio using CW. Both were hams, since most folks who knew Morse, most folks who knew Morse were hams. Bud always had time to help young hams in their pursuit of radio knowledge. He mentored dozens, maybe hundreds of them, around the Chicago area. Rod began elmering ham mentors as Elmers around 1970, and the term caught on. In addition, Bud was always atop the DXCC honor roll until recently. So much of Rod's column, so, mu- so much of Rod's column, was based on info he got from Bud. Bud is now 90 years old and lives in an assisted living facility with his XYL of 65 years. Really nice. Uh, uh, thanks very much, Tom. And beautiful message there. Let's see. Uh, here's a here's a, a message from Dwight. Let's see. It says here. Um, Kudos on your book, Solder Solder Smoke. I am currently enjoying the Kindle version of it, 75% through. I really like how you intertwine your life stories with the technical side of radio. Uh, Please allow me to to introduce myself. My name is Dwight Merkley, N7, KBC, born and raised in Utah. As best I can tell, we are about the same age. I was just shy of 10 years old when Neil Armstrong took that first step on the moon. Boy, did I ever want to be an astronaut. I still, to this day, marvel at how we did what we did back in the 1960s. I remember getting up at 2 a.m. to watch live TV broadcasts from the moon. VCRs weren't even invented then. (laughs) I've been a ham for about 26 years. My summers as a kid were also filled with building and launching SD's rockets, playing with chemistry sets. Remember the ones in the tin box, like a little suitcase that opened up with chemicals and test tubes? We even tried to make hydrogen to float balloons by dissolving zinc in lye solution. I just shouldn't have turned turned off I, I just shouldn't have turned off the valve at the top of the bottle, leaving nowhere for the pressure to go. I got seven stitches in my arm when the bottle burst. Fourteen year olds don't have the best judgment. <laughs> Living dangerously there, Dwight. Anyway, I really want to recommend a book to you. Here's the title How Apollo Flew to the Moon by W. David Woods. This is an amazing book that details how those engineers developed the technology to get us to the moon. There's much detail regarding the use of radio, Doppler shift, astronomy, gyros, etc., etc., to precisely locate and navigate to and from the moon. After reading your book and learning of your love for understanding the underlying details of how and why radio works, I am confident that you would like this book. I'm going to get it. I'm going to order it. And I'm going to order it before I post this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> to give myself an unfair advantage. One of the perks of being the podcaster. <laughs> Good luck to the rest of you. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, thanks for doing the podcast. You have a real talent for describing uh, to to, for, to describe and discuss your love for radio and science. I feel a real kinship for you and your mindset about the magic of radio. Oh, that's very nice, Dwight. Thanks a lot. Dwight sent along some scans of some old SD's model rocket catalogs. A born-again rocketeer. All right, Dwight. Thanks a lot. Now, I have here a couple of really interesting emails from Farhan. He wasn't writing to me. These were posts to the EMRFD um, news group. But they were discussing um, different kinds of radio receiver projects. Somebody had written in asking about whether they should build a superhead or start out with direct conversion and a, a discussion ensued, as, as often happens in technical fora. That's what they're for, right? <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Farhan was responding to, to Rick Campbell, and he, a real a short one here, and I thought it was kind of cool. Rick, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who have heard just the I channel, and those who have been on cue as well. Binaural is worth the extra $5. Remember the first time you heard J.J. Kale, God rest his soul, on a stereo headset? That signed Farhan. <laughs> and then another bit of um, of wisdom from Farhan, and this has to do with something that I've been working on recently, and that is broadening the response of a of a crystal filter. I talked last time, I think, about how on my uh, 17 meter uh, bare bones superhead, the one that was actually uh, put together by W4OP long, long ago. Um, I wanted to broaden it to, to to make it to convert it really from a CW uh, receiver to a uh, an SSB receiver for 17. And um, you, had to, you have to play around a little bit with the uh, the values of the capacitors. Here's a message from um, from Farhan. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, Bob. For any measurement with the crystals, you need You need a signal generator and a frequency counter. I suppose you have them both. If you scan the crystal in parallel and series mode, you'll be able to find out and see the minima and maxima. These can lead you to calculating the Q, Lm, Cm, and the approximate internal resistance. Now all you have to do is plug them into the filter design calculator. You could, alternatively, just use the cone topology Start with 100 picofarad capacitors all around. Terminate it around 200 ohms for your crystals. And listen. If it is too hollow, open up the filter, decrease the caps, and listen again. Ultimately, it is how good it sounds to your own ears that matters. All the plots are only meant to indicate the goodness-badness of a particular filter. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Thanks a lot, Farhan. Always good words of wisdom from uh, from Farhan. All right, that that concludes the mailbag for this August episode of Solder Smoke. I hope you all enjoyed it. Hope you're having a great summer. Stay safe. I hope the weather's kind to you and uh, enjoy the rest of the summer for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, we'll catch you next time. The dogs are barking i got to go do something. <laughs> 7-3 from Northern Virginia.
1: Smoke podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soddersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soddersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to SolderSmoke that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word, let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book Solder Smoke: Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from Lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke T-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke Store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you, but you still want to help, well. We have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!